We want to talk about faith. We want to talk about um, politics. We want to talk about race. We want to talk about pop culture. Literally, everything, 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 everything is up for discussion, and that's what French culture is about. about, about, about. She's Lisa V. He's Randall Keith. And this is another week of Brunch Culture, the show where everything is up for discussion, even Kodak Black. Hit it, Lisa. I need a little baby who's going to listen. Mm. Mm. So I won't be in a penitentiary. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's how it go. I'm so really I won't be in a penitentiary? <laughs> that's what he said. You took about the already, it. like, the already bad lyrics and you just, like, took them way down even more. So I won't be in a penitentiary. You that's what you said? He didn't say nothing about the penitentiary? He does say something about the penitentiary. Okay. But he said, so I was right. He said they don't want to, they, they want to see you in the penitentiary. Oh, they don't want to see you no, in they want to Yeah. They want to see you in a penitentiary. It just sounds like retarded rap. <laughs> and that's what I struggle with. Because I don't know why he's doing it. And that, that bothers me. It is. I, when you sent me the video clip, I would realize that I probably should watch it. Because I saw the, the hat. I don't know if you realize. The hat said, make America hate again. So I think oh, that he I has. Thought it said, Okay, I didn't read it. Yeah, I think he has like a there's like a another meaning, like a deeper meaning. But okay, maybe it's about mass incarceration because he said they want to see you in a penitentiary. Not every time I sing it, I can't not just quote the lyrics. I have to sing it slow because you don't know what he's saying. So what I don't know is like when they developing these concepts for the song or like the sound. Who signs off on it? Like, I think who's... everybody in the room is on is high on a, and on syrup when they do this because yeah, I don't feel like a sense. person with a clear oh, head no. signs off on this. Because I'm finna say like I was finna say being high would make sense, but I'm like nah, being high don't make you like slow though. Like you don't be stupid. You just kind of you know depending on the person you respond differently. But I don't think I don't see I don't see a high person being like. Cause when you hot, you just want to relax. You don't want to think. So I don't. You know what this made me think of? The scene on Greenleaf when she said your music wasn't that good, and everybody looked at her like, "What you talking about, girl?" And he got mad. What? On Greenleaf. Was that like a new show? A new episode? That was on the latest when the girl was the 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 girl that's um the teenager. She's dating a singer. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, And they okay. was in the studio, oh, and everybody yeah, was yeah. like, she was like, I didn't really like it, and everybody was looking at her yeah, like, like, you supposed to like, you supposed to, you supposed you to like say, everything. Yeah, that's what I thought, that's how I feel like this Kodak Black session went. Yeah, but I guess it's probably like the sessions for the whole album, though, like, because <laughs> I don't know that I've heard... And you know what? That's not fair. I can't it's say the this. only Kodak Black song that I've heard. I was well, say, I probably I heard probably more, heard but I don't ones, know. It but was. I don't know the difference between Kodak Black and Young Thugger. Is that his name? Him, no. Young Thugger, and uh, what's the other guy's name? Uh, Uzi. No, I know Designer. Uzi, Lil Uzi. Oh, I don't know him. That's the one with the red hair. What he's what does he what does oh, I'm about to say what does he sing nah, rap nah, what does he I don't know what does he mumble because that's what, what that's that's what I really don't know what I don't I can't remember I'm sure I've heard it I know I've heard a song of his he, he was on oh no that's ASAP was that ASAP Rocky that somebody's on the Target commercial I don't know See, all these I don't know and I'm not I'm not hating on you know the music today I. I can get they into call some it mumble other. rap, isn't it called mm-hmm. mumble rap? Isn't that like no, its official it really, title? It's officially called mumble rap. I thought it was. I don't know. I got that from somewhere. Maybe it was Breakfast Club. I guess maybe, maybe the, I don't think it's called mumble rap. If it know. is called mumble rap, then it explains why they do it. Because if you can call something mumble rap and think that is good, <laughs> I don't can't have. It's a it's too a subset of trap music, isn't it? 
Mm. Is this the evolution of trap music? I, th- I will say it it, it. it it seems to be like a birth of trap music. Okay. And I like trap music. I just don't. The you like smurder. Ray Shrimmer. Ray Shrimmer. Yeah. Smurder. Who is that? That's nothing. You you thinking Bobby Smurder? Okay. He went to jail, <laughs> didn't he? <laughs> Yo, we sound old <laughs> ass. Cr- like, he went to jail. Yeah. He went to jail because he told about what they did in that song. Okay, I remember. Okay. We sound super old. This is really bad. Really. You don't know no block boy. Nah, I don't That's know the that song. I'm trying to think of the beat. Okay, never mind. That's not. Let's get the mimosas and orange juice because I think we've deviated too far from this. Yeah, because we don't know. <laughs> people, people don't know this. So this week on <laughs> <laughs> the sex the segment that we like to call mimosas and orange juice. Um, let's start off with a real rapper. A, let's start off with a real rapper. That makes sense. Good transition. Kendrick Lamar. <laughs> So, stupid people in the Twitter sphere and in the social media sphere, because I don't, I can't imagine why people would do this. But apparently, people were trolling Kendrick Lamar because his little sister graduated. Uh, was it this past week? Mm-hmm. He bought her a Toyota. Mm-hmm. That was the car that he bought her for graduation, and people went in because it's Kendrick Lamar. Kendrick Lamar has money. He's one of the top rappers now. He can afford to get her a BMW a luxury vehicle. Why would he buy her a Toyota? Because apparently that's the thing. I, initially, when I heard this, I was like, why do you care what he bought her? Like, exactly. What? It's not sure. Yeah. It doesn't change your life. What, <laughs> what, like you ain't got the car and if he bought the toyota would he probably paid like twenty thousand dollars for it you got twenty thousand dollars sitting around yeah like, and i feel like what he's starting her off at an appropriate level she's graduating from high school you don't want to give you don't want people to have like their plateau at 18 years old you know what i'm saying you want a gradual progression you want to be able to aspire to something if you're into cars like that, you know what I'm saying? I don't yeah. get you a Bentley for your first car. Where do you go from there? And you want to teach her, honestly, <laughs> you want to teach her work ethic as well. Like she it's Kendrick Lamar. That is, you know, that's out here rapping. I don't know what, what if his sister is, is do, doing anything or has helped him out with anything, but even so it's like as a graduation gift, it's sensible for me. Number one, that you got a car that's paid for that. You ain't got to pay like, that's good enough for me. Graduating high school mm-hmm. with a car that you don't have to pay for. You don't have a car note. We were just talking about car notes earlier. Like, yeah. yo, yeah, look, <laughs> if you can get away, if you can have a car without a car note, you already uh, uh, like above the curve. So this whole, oh, he should have got her bands. I just think it's, it's sad that you can't get your sister, you won't spend the money on your sister. You'll probably waste the money on something else. I I read, which I didn't even know, Kendrick Lamar actually didn't even buy himself uh, a vehicle until like three years after he had been a known rapper. That yeah, was- he lives way below his means, even his house. Yeah, so, I mean, that speaks for it in itself. And I think and it was, what was so annoying for me is like, knowing this, you should be... As a person, you should you should be like, yo, this man actually is thinking, you know, with his head on straight. Like he's not out here. Yes, he's out here making money, but he's not out here blowing that money on stuff. He's trying to teach himself a lesson and also teach his little sister a lesson. Like this is something that you should look in and be like, oh, that's kind of smart. Like if Kendrick Lamar, this big time rapper, can decide to live modestly or without flashing stuff, maybe me that is not making that much money or about to go to college or graduating or in college and, you know, getting funded for by any, any other means beyond money that I made for myself, which most people are doing. Even if you aren't taking out student loans, somebody's paying for it for you. And if that you're lucky enough that it's not you that's paying for it, like out of your own personal pocket. And maybe it's like your parents, but you're going to graduate without debt. Like you got to understand what this man doing. Like, and I'm yes. just like, who are these people that are saying, yo, it should be, he should, he should have bought her a better car. Like, who are you? What, what, Leave it to social media that can find something negative in the good. 
It's just like, this is a happy moment. A brother bought his sister a car. Leave it. Like, why are we even critiquing this moment? Clap. That's it. (laughs) Clap. And if you honestly thought the car was whack, just move on. Just shut up. One of the (laughs) things that is is very annoying is like, because I first heard that people were dragging Kendrick Lamar. And I'm like, what are they dragging Kendrick Lamar for? And they were like, oh, he bought his sister a Toyota. And I was like, was it a broke down Toyota? Did the Toyota... You know, did she get it and it fall apart? Did she get it and it didn't start? Like, I mean, even that, it's like you got a vehicle. We can work on getting it fixed, but you got a vehicle. He bought her a brand new Toyota and y'all don't think it's good enough. Meanwhile, Oprah, a billionaire who all these people look up in, openly says she prefers to drive around in, uh, was it, uh, Chevy's? She likes oh, wow. like Chevy SUVs. That's like the car that she prefers to ride around in. Guys, wow. what are you thinking? <laughs> Where's the logic? You seen Mark Zuckerberg car? He got like a little Prius. Word? Yeah. Again, it's like... <laughs> the minute, and we'll get into this with the main dish, but it's like the minute you realize that like you being able to flash stuff, honestly, the more people flash labels and names and, and, and big time stuff all the time, like a lot of people don't, they flash that stuff and don't, they really don't have, have real the, wealth. Yeah, They don't have real wealth. They don't have the, the, the means to do so. You, there's so many people and there are people that are, you know, wealthy that are flashy, but I know a number of people and I've seen them more as I've gotten older, a number of people that are actually very wealthy and they live very like normal, modest lives. And you would not, if you looked at the way they dressed or the car they drove, you wouldn't know. You probably would know just by like their neighborhood and you'd be like, oh, but it's like, that's something of value. This is something that I can get equity in and get my money returned to me in some sort of way. Like that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. It's I'm like salute to you, Kendrick. I I applaud you for getting your sister a car, because a lot of people don't think about their family sometimes once they make it. So yeah. salute to you for 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 being you know a part. You know you hear stories about people who don't give back or don't look back or don't support. So shout out to him for doing that. Yeah. So, <laughs> Kathy Griffin decided to have a. How, how do I want to say this? She cut off Trump's head, not not in real life, of course, and held it for. Was it a picture or a video? It was like a, I think there was a video that came along with it, but then it was a still shot video. I mean, a still shot uh, photo of it, but the, it came. I think it started off with a video of her kind of talking about Donald Trump, um, and I only saw the the little video clip of her like raising the head. And I think I want to say the image of the head came out first and then uh, the the image of her holding the head came out. And then like she released a video in which she kind of talks about Trump and the issue she has with him. And then it kind of ends with her holding like raising the head up from under the screen. And so you can it it ends on that final still shot that they release. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I my thing was after she took the flag for it, because I thought it was inappropriate because it's just like really what like some things are funny and some things are stupid you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. <laughs> like i felt like that was just stupid and inappropriate but I, the fact that she did that and was so like bold in doing that and then her follow-up was like oh my god he's trying to destroy me and like this breakdown i'm just like girl be, who are you pick who you gonna be you gonna be bold uh, Kathy, are you gonna be this woman trying to get our sympathy? I just felt like it was two different personalities we were seeing all at once. She was Kathy, whatever Kathy she got to be to make sure she get that job. When she got fired from CNN, she was like, "Oh, heck, nah, I'm pulling out privilege." I think like she no thought other. she was safe because CNN is more anti-Trump, but they was like, even that was too far for them. They're like, "Oh." Now we we don't want him, but now that's too far. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I, I, so for me, it was I, I honestly, and I feel like this is really bad. People are gonna look at me real crazy. So I had to be, and I just have to be honest. When I saw it, I was just like, I don't, I, I don't understand her humor in general. I've never, <laughs> she's never been someone that I thought was funny. And we've had this conversation. I've, you know, explained that 
I have a very interesting t- taste. I won't say interesting, but I have a vi- my taste in humor was kind of very limited um, for a long time to kind of like more raunchy hood type humor. And then I started to understand other stuff, and it's like, oh, okay. But just kept, like I've never thought her her jokes and stuff. I never like laugh. I never really laugh at them. I thought she was a funny character when I, I used to watch the little reality show that she had. And so I felt like she was more of a situationally funny person. Like she would be in situations and stuff would happen. And I'm like, I don't know if this is staged, but this is hilarious. But I didn't think like her comedy that she was trying to, when she was trying to like make me laugh and I never laughed. It never came across. So when I saw the image, that's what I thought. I was like, oh, she's trying to be funny. But, you know, just like with every other time, I don't get the the joke. What I, I personally wouldn't like hold a decapitated head up of anybody but i also when i viewed it i didn't think that it was going to be something that was like she was she would get so much flack for because i remember people saying like oh you know people have issues with kathy griffin with kathy griffin and like what she's doing and i didn't really get i was like i don't really get why like i don't i guess i feel like she's a comedian She's not really an authoritative figure. Like, I mean, like, she says that she's a D-list celebrity, and she really is. Like, <laughs> I don't really know. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't really know why this would move people and people would be so bothered. Um, It just, I just didn't really. I was like, I don't really understand. Like, I get that it was it was distasteful um i but and i also was like oh i just kind of thought it was me because i would never be like oh my i didn't i wasn't moved when i saw it i was like oh she's just trying to get stuff to rile people up and i'm very kind of careful about when i feel like people are doing too much just to get a rise out of somebody and that's what i felt like it was so i don't know it kind of shocked me honestly though that so many people took issue with it which i understand why like yo all right come on and then i felt like there were a lot of people that were kind of like bandwagon saying that they had a problem with it and i was like Mm -hmm. i don't think you personally don't really have a problem like i don't really know if you have an issue like there's this one individual that was kind of going in on facebook about how wrong she is and oh my gosh i just can't believe she would do that and i was like but do you really care? Like, it just seemed, I don't know. I, and I guess too, maybe I don't, I don't, maybe I don't know enough about her. I don't know enough about her platform. I honestly haven't heard her name. I don't even think I heard her name this past New Year's and she does a New Year's special. On you CNN. know what was crazy? I didn't even know she worked for CNN. <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing. That's why I was like, that's what I'm saying. Like she does a, a CNN special, a New Year's special every year and i don't even remember hearing her name so maybe i'm not the best person because i'm just kind of disconnected from her altogether so (laughs) i don't know it was just it was like uh, okay but one thing i know for sure she definitely pulled out that i'm about to get i'm finna get my job back when she hit you with them tears and that that video i saw the video on instagram she was just like my career's over my career's over and (laughs) Yes, and he's just trying to hurt me. And I was like, oh, there you go. That's what's <laughs> going to get you back in. There, there it is. I don't think anybody bought that, though. Yeah, probably. Well, I don't know. I don't think. Well, maybe I didn't buy it, but maybe some. I, I, does it sound bad? I'm sure to say some white people will. I don't know. I feel like us as black people just be like girl stop go sit down somewhere i was just gonna say because i feel like she has the room as you would say the the complexion for protection because of that she has the room to make a mistake and come back and be forgiven paula dean did it Uh, exactly um so (laughs) i just don't I don't know that this was like ending her career completely. Like, is she going to lose some stuff? Absolutely. Like, of course, like, you know, are people going to be like, oh, tooting their nose up at her for probably a little while? Sure. But is she never going to be able to book a gig or never going to be able to get an interview? If nothing else, wait six months and then write a book on your life story and label it something dealing with the fall of my career. And you'll be on the New York Times bestseller simply because it's involved with scandal. Mm -hmm. You'll be all right. Like, get out of here. 
just need to take a break and come back to us. Yeah, get out of here. You're you're fine. Yeah. It's funny because I think actually Bill Maher can actually recover from this. Because, I mean, I'm trying to figure out how many black fans he had to begin with. Well, surely he can because it's not... I mean, who cares about him saying something that is offensive to black people? I mean, in, in mainstream. Who's yeah, because really that's, like, that's his, like, lane is mainstream media. So, I mean, I don't know that many black people that say, oh, I'm about to go listen to Bill Maher. Like, you know, so I think in in both of these cases, people pulled them because it was the politically incorrect thing to say at mm-hmm. the time or do. And then with the 24-hour news cycle, they, they don't even have to go six months. They can take a month. I mean, the, the way... Uh, uh, President Trump is doing stuff. I said it for the first time. The way he's doing stuff so quickly. Are you laughing? No, no, no. Go ahead. I, <laughs> I it came out. Uh, the way he's doing stuff so so quickly. You know, give him a month. It, there are a million other things could have transpired where people would have forgot about that because they have the complexion for the protection. They could get past it, even though. You know, especially with the Bill Maher thing, dead wrong. But again, his audience is not us, so he's very likely will get away with it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that. I don't know that this is a career thing for me. I was more so interested in the story because I feel like it brought up the age old question of you know, <laughs> should black people stop saying the n word because white people are starting to say it, and you know, what are the implications what what get what gets us to this point and what's interesting is um i was listening to people kind of discuss it and talk about it and they were saying that a lot of bill mars he's he's one of those he's a he's a liberal he's a white liberal so a lot of the people that he interacts with um kind of give him you know a pass like oh you know it's Bill Maher like he's cool you know he's cool he's cool he's cool and so in the way in which he said it he said it in the probably from hearing it from people that he was around hearing it from his friends and so it's like you know it's this idea that people have this friend it's like this my white friend and if they say it I'm cool or Mm -hmm. I kind of let them in on the jokes that we have and that we use and it's like oh well you cool and so he said it kind of like comfortably enough that he's gotten it or he's kind of got a stamp of approval from somebody else and so that's why he was like cool enough and open enough and didn't see it really as a problem to say it and that's more that's more of the angle that i was interested in it from like yo so what does this say because of course me i don't i don't use the word i don't use the word with my friends i'm a lot more comfortable back in the day like college days i wouldn't even allow people to say it to me or around me um and i was never like oh my gosh you you said the n-word but if somebody like in conversation if somebody said it to me i just look at them and be like i'm not gonna respond to you because i'm not doing that so in in today's time like you know if you said if that's a part of your terminology like it is what it is it's fine like i'm not gonna go on this whole campaign about why you can say it if you ask me why i don't say it or if you ask me why i don't respond to it or i don't think it's funny i'll tell you um and I don't take offense to you saying it because I realize culturally, you know, I grew up in a household where people said it. I grew up in a family in which people said it all the time. People still say it to this day It's my personal choice not to say it for reasons of, you know, things that was given to me by people in my family. It was like, hey, I don't say it and you're not going to say it for this ve- for this reason. And I took that to heart. So I don't use the word. Um, but I also understand, you know, when people use it, why people use it and the the re- the idea that we're reclaiming a word and we're turning it around and we're using it for something else for a term of endearment we're taking a sting out of it like i i understand some of that to a degree or whatever but i think it brings up that question of how much of this is our responsibility and how much of this is uh the fault is it all bill maher's fault really is the question like is that all his fault like do we fault ourselves or do we fault like his friends that probably have allowed him to say that in their presence Mm -hmm. well i mean al sharpton was talking about that and he was saying that he feels just like you nobody should be using the word black Mm -hmm. or white and so i think his thing is and he didn't say this per se at least i didn't hear that part but i think his thing is we can't we can't require others 
of something we're not doing ourselves in a sense i yeah. don't know no and i, I, I and, you, and you know do you did you watch um did we talk about what's the movie the the, the network it's on netflix dear white people dear white as a people. series and you remember that whole fight mm-hmm. they were cool until he used the n-word and then reggie was like uh-uh bro you just across the line you can't right. say that even if you're using it in the song right and and I think that I don't know for for me I I don't again I don't I don't use the word I don't think that people should use the word and I I just believe and I understand the argument of like you know here's one thing that white out of all of the privilege that white people have or all the things that white people can do you know here's the one thing that you can't do and you can't get mad because you know you want to you want to do it and we don't allow you to do it for me, it's just it's too much gray area in, you know, we need consumption, right? We produce music. We put this in our, our song lyrics. You know, we've we've changed the ER to A. And so that changes it to some to whatever degree we're putting this in our song lyrics. We rec- we want the uh, people to consume in order for our artists to be big and to be mainstream and, you know, to have all this longevity. They do need the these this white people this group of people or people that are non-black to consume this music they're gonna consume the music they're gonna buy the records you know they're gonna say it in their their homes or in their closets and when they go to these these concerts who's stopping them from saying it you know what i'm saying like are we out Mm -hmm. there policing them for saying it that's to some degree we're like i know you're gonna say it and for me it's just yeah just no i'm not I'm not doing it and I'm not doing it for the the idea of like respecting the people that the word or the different variation of the word was used to oppress and to hurt. And I think about all those things and I kind of live my life with that, that with people that were enslaved Africans in my mindset, people that have gone through the civil rights time, even, you know, coming over like Africans coming over from Africa and like learning those stories and reading, you know, doing research to figure out about the, the, uh, the mid Atlantic slave trade and just being like, yo, like if I don't want to, I don't want to perpetuate anything like that. And for a lot of people, especially a lot of my friends, it's not that deep. Like you thinking about stuff way too deep. Like it's really not that serious. It's a word. Like I get it. And I'm not going, I'm at the place where I don't argue with people with that, but I do think it's a, it, it begs the question, right? So, because how much of this over time can we control? I feel like we have a lot of people, a lot of like our parents' generation, a lot of those people will use it um, in the household, but they still say like, oh, well, maybe I'm not going to use it once I leave my house or use it publicly. But I feel like now, especially with our generation and the generation behind us, they use it a lot more openly. People of different races use it as a term of endearment. So at some point in time, either we're going to just have to say, well, I'm I'm not bothered if anybody says it or I'm just going to we're going to stop everybody from saying it because this whole idea that we're going to be maintain this monopoly on this word like it's not going to happen like. At some point in time, there's going to be a turning point, And we I guess we just have to accept, you know, what we want, what we're willing to deal with. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So y'all tell us what you think about today's mimosas and orange juice. What do you think about Bill Maher? What do you think about uh, Kendrick Lamar buying a a car for his sister? And what do you think about Kathy uh, Griffin? And what do you think about Kodak Black and Mumble Rap? Hashtag chat BC. We want to hear from you. Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you're going to need some tunnel vision. We'll be back for our main dish. All right, we're back, and it's time to dive into this week's main dish. Uh, this week, we are going to have a conversation and dissect uh, the Roland Martin interview from The Breakfast Club. Uh, Roland Martin recently, was that today or yesterday? Uh, I think it was. No, it wasn't yesterday. I think it was Friday. Okay. One of these days, Roland Martin was on Friday, <laughs> was on The Breakfast Club, and uh, Lisa saw the interview and told me about it, and I went and watched it. I saw like a clip on Instagram, and so we we, we listened to it, and and 
unlike I feel like it was different. It was a different interview. Unlike, you know, most of the interviews we get, even from intellectuals, because, you know, Roland Martin dispelled a lot of myths and a lot of ideals that so many people, so many of us uh, hold on to or think and kind of consider. And he basically kind of brought some like, you know, practical thought thoughts and some facts to a lot of the things that we do and we say um and moving in this space and we just kind of want to talk about it we want to walk through it and dissect it from the perspective of a young professional because i feel like the beauty of the interview being on the breakfast club is their audience the audience base is young professional crowd the audience base is a lot of younger people and the generation after us um it, but I think that interview and the knowledge that he was dropping is going to impact us all in different ways, specifically young professionals, because a lot of things he said uh, spoke directly to our generation and to um, the issues that we face with organizations like the NAACP um, or even, you know, even within issues that we have in our in our our own communities or the places that we come from if you will and we have all of these issues and we have issues with government and we have issues with you know our jobs and we have issues with leaderships and the organizations that we're a part of as he was talking i started thinking about you know greek letter organizations and a lot of the gripes that people outside of the greek community have and even people within the greek community have but aren't active in trying to change those things so i just kind of wanted to to dissect it and talk about it so uh let's uh get into the, just how 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 do we think this was relevant to young professionals um and i'll let you go I'll, i've been talking so i'll let you jump in yeah i thought it was very relevant to young professionals because it challenges he's challenging the critique He's like, man, are you a part of the organization? How how well, I love how he broke it down when he was like, how much do you know about the organization in your particular town? Like, how how much have you communicated with that organization? How much proximity do you have with that organization? Or are you just critiquing things based on media? Right. We know media sensationalizes a lot of stuff. Media cuts out a lot of good that african americans are doing so if you're getting your news about an organization especially naacp urban league national action networks and if you're depending it solely on on based on media it's going to be a very warped view um it, it to me it challenges us as young professionals to get involved to right. not just sit on the sidelines and tweet about our frustrations, but get engaged. Um, I know that, and I said this before, Randall's involvement in NAACP motivated me to get involved in the NAACP. Mm-hmm. And when I went to the meetings, I, I um, when I went to the meetings, I was like, man, it's a lot of older people here who have been putting in work, but you'll never know their work because they're not on social media. Right. Um, you'll never know their work because it's not, they're not, necessarily camera hungry right. um, they're just trying to get stuff done and so i think in an age where we are when we do stuff everything is snapchat everything is social everything is documented right we don't know how to sometimes really engage with the organization and really hear from the organization what they've done and i think he challenges us as young professionals to invest and to see the bigger picture and focus on uh, economics and look at how money and power go together. Um, I thought he, I thought it was great how he showed like what to uh, or organi- what does what line does the White House um, share? And he was like White House and Treasury, right. money and power money and go power. together. And so showing that we have to have access to wealth in order to make power decisions in a sense mm-hmm. um, and be power players and. The fact that we need to invest more in building wealth and not looking wealthy. And so um, I love how he talked about, you know, buying children Jordan. I mean, Nike stock instead of buying them Nikes. Right. um, To just train their minds to see. And then to show them different jobs because he was like, you know, black families, you know, if you're a doctor, a lawyer, that's That's success. That's the pinnacle of success. there's so many other career fields that people are thriving in right. that make money. And it's like, oh, wow. Uh, 
you know. That didn't know it existed. Yeah. yeah. So um, I think, you know, just opening our eyes. I just thought it was, as a whole interview, it was a challenging interview. It's well thought out. And I really, I love the way he challenged Charlemagne and Envy, um, especially, like, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> Besides, you know, they do, I'll give them props for what they do, bringing him on, bringing thought leaders on, um, using their brand to kind of promote others but what are you doing with organizations that have really been putting in the work i think it's important right so i I thought in terms of it being how being relevant to us as young professionals what i thought it did in like a very clear way was it showed how people because uh envy and Charlemagne are older than us i'm not sure if they would be considered millennials maybe they are i don't know but (laughs) (laughs) but basically they definitely displayed a lot of the traits and you know i ride hard for us i love millennials i think that we have we are something special just because of the 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 different time frames that we've been able to exist in you know pre major internet like internet being kind of like mainstream and social media being mainstream we existed in that time so we know how that is and we know how life is posted so we can kind of bridge the gap and be liaisons for both so i think that's dope but i definitely think that at times because we're always seeing images of success and images of things that are happening it's very easy and i don't know i don't think that that's a millennial problem more so like a human problem but once you're fed you have because there's this idea and this thought process that we have access to knowledge and we are consuming you know content that we see everything we know everything and so we when we don't see the stories of the NAACP we don't know what the NAACP is doing um unless we're a part of it we don't see how they're doing like fit wellness programs and fitness programs for the community they're holding meetings for the uh for the community to engage with the local police they're inviting the the police chief and the and the local sheriff to come out and to talk to the community and express their their concerns and their grievances to act specifically about specific situations that happen or specific instances and specific cases and you know things like that they don't see that the local chapter of the NAACP is doing those things we don't see those things so we think that it's not there and i think that the interview specifically specifically kind of called that out it showed us the 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 flaw and the fault in us kind of perpetuating this idea that well i don't see it being done i don't see it being done and i think i told you that that one of the reasons that dj envy really gets under my skin at times is because he seems to be one of those people that based off of his life experience he kind of feels like well i got the keys to success And I know, you know, maybe where I come from or what my story is. And I see, you know, that I'm successful now. And I know that I got there by doing X, Y, and Z. So if everybody else just do X, Y, and Z, they can have it too. Or, you know, because I am out here moving in certain certain places or I went to college in Hampton and now I live in New York. You know, I think that, well, the NAACP wasn't big in New York or wasn't big in Hampton. And Hampton's considered the South. Well, Virginia's considered the South. It was like Virginia is the South in proximity to New York or more northern places, but it's not the deep South. So somebody's experience in Virginia is going to be completely different from that person's experience in Mississippi or Alabama, Georgia. Like, he seems to just not be able to do that. But I feel like the good part is it shows the flaw in us as as millennials, as young professionals, having those same type of, you know, uh, dispositions like we don't really see the fault in thinking that, oh, well, you know, I. I don't see this. So it doesn't seem like the NAACP is doing something. And then when somebody breaks down the actual work that the NAACP is doing, when somebody says, hey, if you want to be a change, this is a volunteer based organization. So if the if the organization itself is not doing it, that's because it doesn't have volunteers to do it. So if you see that there's a problem, then volunteer your time to do it. I thought that was for me that was really really important because i feel like it showed it kind of gave us an opportunity within 30 minutes this 30 minute window to really see us to see a lot of the problems and the grievances that we present and to also see how we 
you know, we present those grievances, but we don't really do anything to change it. And it started, it starts the conversation, which is the conversation I want to make sure that we bring here is, you know, when we are, we're talking about problems and we're talking about issues, um, be it in government, be it in organizations. And I particularly want to focus on, and I guess we should focus on, you know, within black organizations or organizations that promote a black agenda. If we have issues with those organizations, what are we doing to change those things? What are we doing to get involved, to get engaged and to, you know, at least express our opinion. And I think when you express your opinion, I remember telling one of my friends this, cause I feel like she always had, had this tendency to, I would present an idea and she would always tell me like why what it wouldn't work or how there's 50 other people doing the same thing. You shouldn't do it. And this ain't good. This isn't good. This isn't good. And so she was like notorious for shooting down somebody else's idea but when she presented an idea, if you shot it down, she was very sensitive to like, oh, well, I don't want to keep negative people around me. And I want people that's going to believe in my dreams and yada, 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 yada. But I was like, yo, don't present to me. If you're going to tell me that something is wrong, present to me an option or an idea or a thought process. Consider how I can improve it or differentiate myself. If you can't give me no productive feedback that will enhance my idea or improve it, then shut up about <laughs> it not being enough. And I feel like I take I say that to say when it comes to like you know, people's issues with the NAACP um, or in any other type service, uh, civil service or civil rights organization. If you have an issue with that organization, but you aren't involved and engaged with that organization, you're not giving money to it. You're not, um, you know, joining the organization or trying to give of your time. You kind of got to just like take your opinion and put it on the back burner because it's really not helping. Yeah. And I love how he, you know, broke down that giving for the HBCU, um, because I think um, a lot of misconceptions, he kind of dispelled as far as funding and what it takes for foundations to give. And sometimes why PWIs get more money from foundations than HBCUs, because they look at alumni giving, giving, um, to gauge whether there's interest in the school Mm -hmm. and so that's a good measure and metrics uh i guess for foundations so it's kind of like when you take that in consideration and then you say okay we have a part to play in our own progression so many times we want people we want help without putting in work without giving back and you know there's the thing where we'll Maybe people don't have money to give back, but I love how he talked about, well, you come back for homecoming. Yeah. You, you, you pay for the flight and you pay for, you know, you pay for the, the, the travel costs and hotels and all that other good stuff. Um, I thought it was actually to that point um, of, of talking about HBCUs. He said something that he said he he does an HBCU give day. Mm-hmm. And he mentioned something that actually really stood out to me because he was like, given to an HBCU, whether you attend it or not. And that really really resonated with me because you know i i ride for hbcus in the sense that i know people that have attended hbcus and i've literally seen the night and day change um of people that have done it i didn't attend an hbcu and i I myself personally and i I had i didn't attend an hbcu but my pwi experience there was literally a night and day change like from going in to coming out, there was a complete change in my personality and the way that I approach life. People, you know, how I handle things and like, but I've seen that in myself, but I've also seen it in other people. And I see, you know, a lot of great things that have come out of HBCUs, but I always, I never considered giving as a non-alum, you know, I never mm-hmm. considered like Me oh, just taking, you know, $20 and sending it to an HBCU. But I do give to my university. I try at least once a year to give something and I don't have, you know, thousands of dollars to give but i feel like i can at least take some small portion of money to give to my my university and for me it's like okay well let me find 
Um, let me give to my college. Let me give to my college for uh, scholarships that are going to go to first generation college students and first generation college black students. And so, like, I've gotten it down to a science to be very specific to say, hey, I want to give money to people like me, even in my PWI. But I never once considered what I could do also is give to maybe the same group of people at an HBCU. So at least I know for sure that money is going to go to hope somebody that looks like me because student population wise, it is that the school may be predominantly is likely going to be predominantly black. So, um, yeah, let me give to this or just to keep the, the school open, seeing all of these things about cuts, uh, HBCU funding cuts. And, um, I read a, there was a piece that was done about, uh, Morris Brown and mm-hmm. I was, re- it was actually really, really sad. They were talking about like the numbers of students that used to attend and how basically the school lost his accreditation and how, uh, now I think that the the student body was something like a few hundred or something like that. Like it was really really sad. Um, the campus is really the things have been sold off on the campus, so the campus maybe cons- consist of like five classrooms or something like that. Like it was wow. re- yeah, it was really sad reading, and I'm like, dang, well, what can be done if they're not accredited and the funding's not there? But not once have I thought that. Wait, as a non-alum, maybe I should give $100 to this university or to this school just to try to support keeping the doors open. And I kind of feel even I don't even be transparent and say now I feel like that's kind of lame because it's like, how do I what, what do I tell people like, oh, I give to this HBCU because I didn't go there, even though I didn't go there. Like to me, traditionally, it just seems like real lame and it seems weird. Like, why would a person do this? But I'm glad that he mentioned that because, as I said, it challenges me. It makes me consider this. It makes me say, all right, next time that I, you know, want to say that, hey, I'm going to give to my university. Maybe I should give to this to this school because I do think that HBCUs are important. I do think that they have a place. I do think that, you know, the mission statements of these schools and the, the faculty that they bring, they bring aboard and the amount of pride that people have inspires other generations of people to go to schools and go to HBCUs watching a different world. I was off on Friday and I sat there. I sat on my couch eating uh, oxtails from this Jamaican place that I'll tell you about. I found this real dope, but I'm eating (laughs) oxtails and rice and peas and watching a different world. And like the, the show of course is so relevant, but they they're talking about their school and their HBCU and the pride and the love that they have. And, all of these things from, and I'm like, I think that that's valuable. Although I didn't have, I don't have that experience personally. I think that is valuable. And I think that that amount of passion about this institution bleeds over to other people and inspires them to go as well. And I think that's a good thing. So it, it would make sense that I can give as a non-alum and like, why did I never think of that? So yeah, that's actually dope that he mentioned that. Yeah, and I love how he challenged us to be owners. Um, they were talking about the tennis shoes and the the guy, I can't think of his name right off the top of my head, but I don't agree that he's charging like $400. I think that's ridiculous, but I like the, the, the ideal behind it, us being owners of things, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying, and not letting, you know, Nike or these big organizations um kind of shortchange us in a sense right because you start thinking about the amount of money we just talk about nba players just for for the sake of this argument bring into these um organizations steph curry under armor shoes nike lebron james jordan you know if all of them band together and created their own brand people would buy the shoes because it's theirs you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's like we don't think like that. Sometimes we think about, you know, just getting a check. And it's like, but it sometimes you, you know, this, it is for you to, you know, get a check and work a job. But sometimes when you're in a position of power and great wealth, you have an opportunity to change, to turn the system on its head. Right. What I thought was interesting, too, and here's one thing, because I'm usually very not on board for people criticizing black people in the public space. I'm usually not. I'm usually very sensitive to it. I feel like it's done. Actually, one of my my roast this week was going to potentially be something I actually might roast somebody next week for it. But people kind of taking 
something that happens or, or, or bad things that happen and kind of say, well, black people do this as a whole. And it's like, no, do you do it? You're black. So you already <laughs> just killed your argument because you're black and you say that you don't do it. So stop saying black people do it. Like, that's not that's not it. But I feel like with this interview, he didn't he didn't criticize uh black people as a whole in that way it was more of a challenge and it was a challenge of love hey here's what we have to do you know as people here's what people should do here's what we should be thinking about and it definitely wasn't like a you know you're you're horrible you shouldn't do that but he also mentioned in doing that and the reason that i brought this up is that he mentioned the um how this essentially the timeline of freedom and how a better gauge of what that timeline is, is really to start in 1970 in terms of being fully free, if you will. And he used that to talk about being kept out of economic empowerment and economic growth and how being left out of knowledge base and being able to think about, you know, what ownership means and how to how to be in this space and how to, you know, make this money. He used an example of a guy that uh, was uh, was a physician. And for us, for many of for, for many of us, many people, but many for many black people, you know, you become a doctor. You're like the, the pinnacle of success and wealth. And the guy that was a physician was like, no, like I realized, uh, wait, somebody got their own jet. Well, what do I need to do to do that? Oh, they're into hedge funding. All right, let me do Let me let me get in on that. Let me let me do that so that I can move into this other arena. And I thought that was really I thought it was good that he mentioned it because I feel like for us, it, it challenges us. And I think for, for us as, as young professionals, it challenges us to think about that stuff, to consider, you know, what do we know as wealth? Let's challenge that. What do we know as being like the epitome of success and like what other spaces and places can we go? What other things do we need to learn about? What other people do we need to learn about? What people do we need to research and find their stories that those people that aren't mainstream, those people that, you know, we don't see on Instagram or don't have a million followers. There are some people that might have one following or no following may not even be on social media directly, but you know, they've been able to create and build wealth and sustain sustain themselves how do we find out about those people so i thought it was very you know it was it was very productive that he pointed out in that way without doing it in a way that it's kind of like whoa all of these you know black people just do all this bad stuff and just black people just because when people say that and i guess that's not what they're 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 typically that's not what they mean but what it comes across as to me, and I, I really get annoyed with it, um, is that, you know, all black people are just so bad and we're just so ignorant and so dumb because we're black without there being uh, an acknowledgement of. Context. The, yeah, you're not putting context to it. You don't understand that, yo, maybe a, a, a large group of these a large group of us do believe this or think this. But why do we act this way? Where does this behavior come from? Who maybe didn't show us? Who maybe didn't teach us? How did you know if you know something or you do something a different way? How did you get there? I personally had a, a moment last week when I was talking to a family member that was just like butchering the simplest words, like butchering them. And I started, <laughs> I was on the phone and I was getting annoyed because I'm like, you're not even trying, like, you're not even trying to say the word properly. Like, what is your problem? And I started getting annoyed on the phone. I wasn't expressing it outly, outwardly, but like, as I'm listening, I'm kind of like, oh my gosh, I need to get off the phone. I'm going to explode. But then I started <laughs> thinking, Randall, you used to talk this way. You used to be this person. And it wasn't like you talked this way when you were five, six. You were 18. You went to college. You did two years at a community college and then went to a university speaking this way. So it's like you can't like what what happened to you that took you out of this place that you started to try to articulate your words better or try to look at the word to to realize how it's pronounced and to actually enunciate so that people can get what you're saying you went through something that got you there so for us it's like 
as opposed to making these blanket statements about black folks, like, let's consider, hey, what changed in me that got me there? And I feel like Roland Martin did a good job um, at doing that. One other thing that he said that I just want to make sure that I touch on is how he talked about um, how many uh, with the 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 housing crisis, 53 percent of um, black wealth was eliminated. Right. Mm-hmm. But he mentioned something else, which was so important because I myself had I was just telling a friend this like two weeks ago how and maybe I don't know if I was talking to you. I was talking to somebody, but going how, you know, uh, civil service jobs, public service jobs, government, uh, the federal level, the local level has taken somebody that was poor in the poor class and make them made them middle class and how when we start to cut those jobs out when you hear people say that we gotta you know cut cut government out and make smaller government but it's really making a smaller government in theory theoretically because the services aren't being stopped we're not cutting the services we're not cutting like the the responsibility or the role of government we're really taking those jobs and we're putting it into private businesses and through contracting but these things are still being required how that takes so many people out of the middle class so many of our people out of middle class and as a young young professional that you know is out here trying to build it if we lose our career for many of us, if we lose our career, we lose our wealth. We lose mm-hmm. our, you know, we lose our status in the middle class. We don't have things that are sustaining us beyond our jobs, our career. So it's like, that's what, it, that's what our wealth is. So I thought it was really, really, I thought it was, that stood out to me as well. And I thought it was really big that, I mean, really good that he pointed that out because to the breakfast club audience and to us, as we talk about it, like, Consider that, you know, consider where your money lies and what your bread and butter is and what happens to you if you lose that. If you no longer have that, if there's a change or a cut or something, how does that work? How does that play out? And what is that? What does that mean for you going forward? And like when you consider that, we start considering, well, how do I secure my future beyond this or on top of this what other things can i do to you know create income and to create wealth and it kind of gets us to really thinking and considering when we're making decisions you know for local government for state government for federal government when these people are saying things like what does that mean for us you know what does that mean for people that are educated and doing well for themselves if we start making certain shifts and certain cuts how does that impact them you know how does that change the 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 scope and the dynamics of what it means to be black and middle class how many people get cut out from that and i I think that's just something that we don't automatically one-off think to consider that we definitely have to consider yeah, I think that's so vital because you that's such a crucial piece that that I missed um, that you brought out um, talking to me last week and then Roland reiterated. So, yeah, I think many of us missed that and I'm blind to that. And I, that exposure, I think, enlightened so much. Yeah, absolutely. So if you guys haven't seen it, check out the Breakfast Club interview with Roland Martin. Um, we'll put it out on our social media just so you guys can see it and maybe cut up some sound bites. Um, some clips and try to put it to post it to our Instagram because it was a good interview and it's a good interview for you to just take not just to hear and just listen to but take it or take our episode and and share it with some friends and talk to some friends about it just so that we're thinking I think you know the, the power in that that discussion was the platform that it was on but the true the, the real power in that discussion was the topics that he was discussing the way in which he was challenging a lot of our our normal thoughts and the ways that we just kind of say things or we we hold tight to these beliefs without putting them in contact putting them in context and challenging ourselves to actually be agents of change in ways that we're agents of change in other areas so check out the breakfast club interview with roland martin uh share this episode with your friends you guys can hit us up and let us know what you think about this episode talk to us more about what you thought about it or some thought maybe some some other thoughts that you feel like he could have included in the show um or in that interview interview that he didn't get to that you think needs to be that need to be considered and we can talk about them in a public space so that we can all get this knowledge uh use the hashtag chat bc you can hit us up on twitter at brunch culture and on instagram at brunch underscore culture 
be sure to check out our website at www.brunchculturebc.com and you can email us questions comments or whatever good bad or indifferent at brunchculturebc at gmail.com and we're going to wrap this up we will be back for our toast or rose And we're back with our toast or rose. Today, I want to um, toast Roland Martin and his critique of Melissa Harris Perry. And I guess this is a toast and rose because I'm kind of toasting Roland for his tact and how he uh, how he dealt with the issue and kind of critiquing Melissa Harris Perry with the same critique he gave at the beginning of his interview with The Breakfast Club. Like, why is she writing about the NAACP to a majority white audience? And it's kind of what Randall hinted to in the main dish, like making black people look bad in front mm-hmm. of white people and feeding a stereotype. And I think we have to be really cautious of that. And because I'm really cautious of that when I'm in my field, in my field, a lot of times I have to address um, issues in front of white people. Mm-hmm. But I I always make sure I deal with things as it relates to African-Americans where I'm painting us in the best light. And then I critique us when I'm in the setting with African-Americans, you right. know what I'm saying? Right. And so I think we have to be really wise in how we present ourselves. It's like family, like you cover for your family in public, but you might say something, you know, when yeah, y'all get you home. check them, you check them behind closed doors, but <laughs> You don't check them in public. And I think, you know, I think that's what Roland Martin was trying to communicate. Like, hey, you know, I know that the NAACP has certain issues. I know the board is too large. You know, I know that there's issues there. But why are you dealing with it in a forum where your audiences are white and they have nothing to do with the information you're presenting? No interest. Don't really care. Not going to do anything to improve it. Are you writing on TV one BT like a black something that has a majority black audience blavity? You know what I'm saying? But just to do white mainstream and kind of shade the whole organization, then I I could see white people reading that and say, yes, this is why the NAACP is irrelevant to our times. You know what I'm saying? I just I feel like that shouldn't have been done. And I think Roland Martin, you know, said what what many people probably were already thinking so uh that's my toast and two i guess it's a toast and roast uh for today yeah that's right i think that's good i'm i'm all for that um so i want to toast this week to uh 37 year old leslie mcspadden uh she's the mother of michael brown and she received her high school diploma this past week Wow, that's dope. And I just think it's amazing. Um, I, I I saw the headline and I wasn't sure if it was real uh, because I'm typically when I see stuff on like Instagram and it's just a, a snapshot or a photo. I'm always like, I don't really know because, you know, people conjure up stuff. Not that mm-hmm. it would be a bad thing, but I just I was I'm, I was very cautious about it. And then I started to, you know, I just did like a Google search and started to see. Uh, that actual, you know, places that usually fact check things were were giving her congratulations, and I was just elated because I know a number of people um, that are her age and older that don't have high school diplomas. And after a while, I believe after a while of not, you know, achieving that or obtaining it, people start to feel sad, start to feel down on themselves, start to feel insecure, you know, that adds to other issues in their lives. And so to see her go through and to graduate and to get that, that high school diploma and to walk, I'm sure that she was proud of herself. I'm sure that her family was proud of her, but I, to me, it just really want my heart to see that she, you know, she went back and she, she did that because for a lot of people, there's so many people that life and circumstance happen that aren't able to achieve that. And it becomes like this horrible thing that people laugh at them and pick on them for. And to me, it's just like, it's as simple as just going to do it. 
but having not been in that situation and not knowing how it feels. And I'm sure, you know, she faced a lot of like internal battles with herself. Um, even it saying that I, I want to do this after not being able to achieve that. That's like a sour point that people look at you and it's kind of like everybody expects everyone to have a high school diploma without realizing that some people for whatever reasons, um, be it ones that they created or ones that they couldn't help don't have it, but it's never too late to go back and to invest in yourself. And so I just want to toast to Leslie. You did it. Congratulations. Um, the sky is the limit for what you can do. I think that, you know, we saw your strength and we've seen how you've responded to the world um, after the, the killing and the murdering of your son. Uh, so that's one thing. But seeing that you're, you're still able to go out and to face those challenges head on and to achieve, I think it's amazing. It's inspiring to me. She definitely made me be like, you know what? I got to get serious about studying because like if somebody can fight all of these internal these internal and external battles and still come out on top of something that she could have easily said there's no need for me to do it at this age like if she can do that then i should be inspired enough to do it so toast to her leslie mcspadden 37 michael brown's mom out here getting her high school diploma kudos and toast to her yes and that's amazing yeah it's it was i was really like yo this is this is it <laughs> that's that is inspiration on top of inspiration and that leads us right into our good vibe our good vibe from today comes from mark twain it says continuous improvement is better than delayed perfection yes yeah i think that sums up and puts a perfect bow on this whole episode yes because it kind of that's threaded that's weaved throughout everything we've said from our in our main dish and our um our toast especially randall's um so yeah, you you guys remember continuous improvement is better than delayed perfection. That's it. Well, that is that wraps this episode of Brunch Culture. As always, guys, we thank you guys so much for rocking with us. Um, I don't know if I mentioned we mentioned it earlier. I think we mentioned it earlier, but we are coming up on three years next week. Wow! Next, yeah, next week uh, is June fourteenth. Brunch Culture will be three years old. It'll be three years from the date that we released our first episode which is amazing it's an incredible feat uh we appreciate everybody that has been rocking with us since the first episode for people that have you know joined joined on with us throughout this process we appreciate it we want to continue this show and continue to do what we're doing uh we thank you guys so much this is definitely a salute to you here um for just listening to us and supporting us and supporting our dreams and we know that you know there's been we've gone through some different seasons and some different times and sound qualities and and schedules and all this other stuff but we appreciate you guys for rocking with us for listening to us make sure that you guys uh subscribe to us on itunes leave us comments uh you know good comments our great five stars we really appreciate but just anything just interact with us and let us know what you're thinking again we're on twitter at uh brunch culture and on instagram at brunch underscore culture and we have a website www.brunchculturebc.com all of our episodes are there you can find out some information about us as hosts you can see some pictures of us um some of the pictures i look a little crazy in but i'm sorry it's okay um i've been working <laughs> i've been in the gym so you know we're gonna look a little better um, but hit us up there and remember here at brunch culture guys everything is up for discussion